This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and I've been a huge fan of Lydia Malay's for a very long time. And it was extremely exciting to see her as a finalist for the Pulitzer for Love and Infant Monkeys, which I always have to look up that title because I love it so much, but I get it backwards sometimes. And A Children's Bible was the National Book Award finalist for 2020. And now we have Dinosaurs, which I'm going to say I think it's your best book. And I hope I'm not jinxing anything because it's really fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Can we talk about Gail for a second? Where did this guy come from? I mean, yes, he came from 24th and Madison and walked to Arizona, but. Well, actually, that part of him and, and only that part really was um, stolen from my my partner's life, uh, my boyfriend's life. I never know what to call um, him because like I'm too old to say boyfriend, but like partner sounds like a business transaction. He did move from um, from Brooklyn to here, but he did not walk. But before he moved, he walked the whole Appalachian Trail, which is uh, okay. about the same distance. And so and I thought it was so extraordinary. It demonstrated, you know, along with fitness and various other things and willingness to be uncomfortable, but just like a phenomenal tolerance for boredom that I would never have, you know. <laughs> and uh, And yet he did this with like, you know. I mean, it took time from his life, and but also was his life, of course. And mm. I was just kind of impressed by the certain seamless quality with which he did it, as though, I mean, it was a big accomplishment, but it also was just what he was doing. When I was writing this book, that was sort of what was happening, and I embedded it in the story. I myself moved out to Arizona from New York also, but I, I needless to say, not by foot, so... And Gil picks Arizona because of a piece of drone footage, which I thought was a really nice touch because the more time I spent with Gil, the more I was like, all right, who is this guy? Because he surprised me at every possible turn. I really like this guy. I'm glad. I was fond of him too. Sometimes you just have to write characters you are you are fond of. So he's got these neighbors and they have bought a very expensive modern house that he didn't even know was next door to him because when you buy your house from drone footage, you don't really see what the sides of the buildings are. You just see the roofs. When I realized that you were talking about an entirely, it, it, a run of glass that just goes down the entire side of the house, I'm thinking, oh no, are we, are, do we have a bad neighbor story coming? Oh no. Because you've written thrillers before. I mean, thriller-esque kind of books. And <laughs> I wasn't entirely sure where... We were going to go, and then we meet these very nice neighbors. <laughs> Everyone is so nice in this book. <laughs> right, it's sort of a wish fulfillment, a neighbor wish fulfillment fantasy, completely, isn't it? Completely, completely, yeah. I mean, these neighbors are great. So we've got Gil, who's total fish out of water, and we get his backstory as things go on. But we've also got artists and Ted and their children, Clem and Tom. And Gil becomes part of their family pretty quickly, which... What a nice touch. Yeah, I mean, Artis is, he's at the beginning quite a passive receiver of Artis's more aggressive social gregariousness or something. Mm -hmm, like she, mm -hmm. And I've known a couple of people like her who just are these kind of social forces of nature who just won't take no for an answer. And I'm kind of astonished by them and their energy. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> 
<laughs> because, you know, I always just need a little time by myself in a given day. But I really have known extroverted people like artists. And so her, she sort of launches this campaign to embrace Gil. And he says yes. I wasn't expecting him to say yes. I was sort of expecting him to drag his feet a little bit. Yeah. And I think he has maybe a minute where he thinks he's going to drag his feet. And then, no, he's right there. Is this the first time you've set a novel in Arizona? I think it is, right? Yes. Yeah, it is. I've always been reluctant to set fiction, except for a couple of shorter things, but to mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. set it in my in my adopted home. I don't know. Maybe it feels too personal when I do mm -hmm. that. Because, you know, I've never, this book is somewhat of a of an exception, but I've, I don't write that often from the literal facts of my right. personal life. So I think that's partly why I set this in Phoenix, which is not where I live, but right. it's parts of which are similar to where I live. It's much more an enclave of sort of white privilege and the sort of setting of this novel than, than Tucson is. Mm -hmm. Not that there aren't pockets of Tucson like mm -hmm. that, but mm -hmm. Tucson isn't that kind of a rich, big, somewhat red city, you know. Phoenix and, is different that way. Yeah. And Phoenix, though, has part of the problem that Los Angeles has, which is the giant lawns and the boxwood hedges and all of these things that don't actually belong in the desert. And I spend a lot of time in Los Angeles and I get impossibly frustrated when I see things that just aren't meant to live in the desert. And Los Angeles was built in a desert. And obviously, people who've read you before know that climate change is something that you think about quite a lot. And I wanted to ask you about the title, Dinosaurs, a novel, because birds definitely have a role in this book. But I also was wondering if you were thinking about us. Yeah, I think Dinosaurs has, uh, you know, a number of dimensions. And also just there's the sort of magnetic, sort of fascinating quality of the dinosaurs, their sort of iconography. But um, yeah, all these shadows and shades of who we are and aren't and who we might be and and who the other creatures around us may be or mm -hmm. may to be and you know it's about sort of solitude and also though about obsolescence and extinction and and all that stuff also I was <laughs> I was thinking of an exchange that my kids had with my mm -hmm. when they were younger with my mother's partner who's who's um, among other things a geneticist Mm -hmm. where he kept insisting to them that birds were dinosaurs, just birds are dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. Not birds are descended from dinosaurs, but birds are dinosaurs to a okay. genetic, was what he maintained. Um, oh, okay. You know, and the kids would just argue with him because, of course, like, instinctively <laughs> and morphologically and all those other ways, and also in terms of just extinction, um, you know, birds aren't really dinosaurs. And yet they are. They are in many, many ways, sort of historically the remnants of dinosaurs, you know, and I sort of like that double category that birds have and also that dinosaurs have of being present in the case of the dinosaurs, being being sort of present in their lives, mm -hmm. oddly, in these like shadowy forms that often are toys, but not existing for so long that we can't even conceive of how the world was when when they lived here. Yeah, you know, I was watching that David Attenborough dinosaur thing recently because David Attenborough dinosaurs. And what I couldn't figure out is how do you recreate what their skin is like and who had feathers? I mean, I suppose you can figure yeah. out who had feathers and who didn't, but color palettes? I was like, huh. I know. Okay. I thought about that. this? Yeah. <laughs> the coloration. Yeah. And there have been so many different debates, haven't there? Sort of about their color. Their yeah. Color. Yeah. And even their sort of like 
yeah, their featheriness or non-featheriness. And yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm pretty mystified, but I don't have immense patience for the details of paleontology. So unfortunately, I mean, I sort of, I'm like a child. I like the pictures. I like the form. I like the names, you know, and the, and when there's some natural history, I like that too. You know, I think there, there was this recent story. It was not, maybe not recent anymore. It was like a year ago or two years ago about a particular dinosaur that they found somewhere in a water body. I think maybe they found it in the ocean, but they were able to sort of reconstruct its life mm-hmm. in the river and that had it, it had floated out and eventually right. to the ocean or being somehow transported after it died out to the ocean and stuff. And I just love the idea that we can sometimes, or the paleontologists can make these narratives of dinosaur right. lives out of, but I'm, but I'm mystified by it. Totally mystified. I just kind of want to be told a good story. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, and sometimes the dinosaur stories are great stories. I prefer your kind of dinosaur story to an actual four-legged thing, but. Well, their conversations aren't as good. Yeah, totally not. Your dialogue is great. Your dialogue right. in this. Compared book. to a and, dinosaur's, Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, and you know, the other thing is, too, you don't seem to write glum books. Even when you're dealing with the unpleasant and the uncomfortable and the, I mean, certainly when I look at children's Bible, a lot happens in that book. You don't write glum books. And and in this case, I mean, dinosaurs, yeah, you're writing about extinction, but it feels still very much like a hopeful book. I mean, especially when you look at all of the things that Gil goes through. And where he ends up, it's really, it was such a joy to read. <laughs> There's kind of aspects of melancholy that I love as a yeah. reader, yeah. you know, but, but I'm not, but I can't, I can't write a book that I wouldn't want to read. Like that. there's a certain kind of sort of flatness of affect or something that can come with, um, I don't know, is that what you call glumness or certain kind of like right. depressed interiority or something right. like that that I'm not, I'm not particularly interested in, although I am interested in, in just sadness and like a certain beautiful yeah. quality that sadness can have sometimes, um, melancholia or whatever. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. that sort of, I'm not, I can't write books that I don't want to live in, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I, I don't really want to live in just a depressed book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I don't want to just live in a depressed world that you have to there has to be more fire than that with dinosaurs did you start with the idea or did you start with Gil I mean I sort of feel like he showed up kind of fully formed in a way yeah I think I did start with Gil and then I knew I wanted to um have a house with a glass wall that yeah. <laughs> I wanted to have a kind of like stage set for humans in the book and that was kind of what I started from and also knowing I wanted to t- to be in the desert, even though like the desert really is the, is the last place you should build a house with a glass wall, but it has been done. <laughs> it's definitely been done. And also fight no more, um, you know, may have hit really hard for me as <laughs> someone who spends a lot of time in Los Angeles. So I appreciate yeah. sort of when you're writing about the idea of home and when you're writing about the places we insert ourselves and almost that space between public and private and the idea of putting a glass wall on your home. and it seems like the curtains don't ever really get closed between Gil's home and Artis's and Ted's home. And that just, I think that was why I had a little bit of dread when I first started reading Dinosaurs. I was like, oh no, oh, oh no, oh, this glass. <laughs> it, it's, and it's partially because I live in cities. And, you know, when you live in cities, you don't necessarily want to look directly into someone's apartment. Sometimes it happens and whatnot. But that wall was really disconcerting for me at first. and. 
then of course it makes perfect sense and everything else. But those, those early pages, I was just kind of like, oh no, this can't. Who lives yeah, in a fishbowl? Yeah, yeah could, exactly. But exactly. I think we do, we, you know, increasingly live in, in houses like that. There's just this, we're so fascinated apparently by seeing the faces of others constantly and our own faces reflected back at us. And, you know, it just, it, we, we make our own lives into fishbowls now, it seems to me. And of course we try to sort of curate the content, no matter what you do, you can never curate in a way that is authentic. It's never going to be authentic. And so mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I think we're just, we are living in that sort of metaphorical house now, or we're, we're literally living in this place that's all about seeing and being seen all the time. And increasingly, if, if we're young, right? Like the young, especially there's just this, and of course us who, <laughs> we in our forties and fifties and whatever are, sort of peripatetic in that world we're just kind of on the margins of it but the truly young like the teenagers and even like older kids and certainly people in their 20s and they're just constantly in that sort of enrapturement of screens and and human forms and figures and faces that are are constantly being being scrutinized right and it's something we, whose importance we really can't even approach in fiction right now because the, the cultural ramifications of it are quite extraordinary, I think. And, and perhaps we won't be able to understand them for a while. But even on a very small scale, I mean, there's a moment where Clem is on the back deck of her parents' house with the glass wall. And she's surrounded by other kids from the neighborhood, and they don't even really know how to talk to each other. And they're just all on their phones. And we've all seen moments like this, whether it's <laughs> even people in our own sort of <laughs> cohort. <laughs> yeah. Where yeah. no one no one can sit with the discomfort long enough, so better to just jump on your phone. And Clem just sort of looks at Gil and says, what do I do? And he's like, well, you can, there, there are pinball machines in my basement, so why don't you go across the lawn and and take these kids into my house and you can go play pinball and they don't get any of the cultural references to the pinball machines. But the idea that these kids who live in the same place, who are going to go to the same school, who have essentially a similar experience, they're just like, yeah, I'd rather sit on my phone than actually meet a person who is arm's length from me. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what we did, you know, mm-hmm. when I was a teenager and we didn't have cell phones or anything like that. And like when we were socially awkward, I swear, I think there were times we just actually sat there in silence. Yes. Like, like I mean, do you remember that? Like, I feel like- I absolutely remember that. Or someone would like force weird conversation and then you just stare at each other when the conversation inevitably died. But there was interaction. It was just always awkward. And we were all like baby giraffes. We really didn't know what we were doing. It was awkward and there was more boredom. And I'm not saying that it was fun exactly. Mm -hmm. It was boredom and they're not the same. Right. But there is all, you know, a considerable, considerable body of, you know, of information now suggesting that boredom is really necessary for creativity and for sort of productive ways of being in the world. And I worry that there's a certain lack of boredom. Not that you don't have boredom with the screens. It's a different form of boredom, right? Like you can be scrolling through your phone and completely bored, right? You could be completely bored, but you're still looking at something that pretends to be something and your certain neurons are firing off, right? In your brain and you're not filling the void yourself. You're 
just being bombarded, right, with with something. And I think that it'll probably take us a while to understand what that's doing to our minds, especially those like that are still, you know, developing that are really adding cells every day and stuff, unlike mine, which, you know, is shedding them or whatever, they're dying at this point. But, you know, part of me wishes that all of the folks who, and I'm guilty of it too. I mean, if you, if you're stuck online, I mean, I am constantly doing this too, but there are also times where I dip into short stories because you can read a story in the time that you're standing online, depending on what the line is, you can bomb through a short story and have a different experience. And it's not just having something broadcast into your retinas kind of thing. It's actually engaging with ideas and words and character and yeah, story. And I just, I wish I could convince more people to do this. <laughs> yeah. Or reading like poems say are right. perfect for that. I mean, they're yep. just short form things that are, I don't know, vessels for ambiguity or um, just interpolation, like things where there's room for your mind to move, but that are short. I think it behooves us to try to prolong the lives of, of those forms in like the minds of the young. <laughs> And not have everything be image and not have everything be that particular pictorial two-dimensionality. Tom is, what, 11 in the book? So he's just on that cusp of um, adolescence. And he and Gil become pals, which I really appreciated because it seems like Gil did not have the easiest childhood. His parents have died. He's raised by a grandmother who is not letting him pick his own clothes. Let's just say that. You know, it sounds like he's dressed like something out of a 1940s Busby Berkeley kind of pleated pants, wool trousers. You know, is it Brideshead Revisited? Or is it like the poor kid is just not wearing, you know, Wranglers. He's just not wearing what the other kids are wearing. And it's this sort of genuine sweetness where Gil kind of almost becomes like a surrogate parent. And it's not like the parents in the children's Bible. I just want to be clear. Artists and Ted, actually, they like their children. They are fully aware. They are involved. But at the same time, these kids are kind of at loose ends because mom and dad both work and dad travels. And here's this neighbor who doesn't have to work because he's independently wealthy. Yeah. Well, so when I wrote this book, my son was about the age of Tom. He's, you know, Tom isn't him, but Tom has aspects of him. The love of skateboarding, Mm -hmm. for example. Um, (laughs) And also just like a certain poignancy that young boys have sort of at that age before they turn a little harder and more and scoff more at you and are embarrassed of you uh you know that moment before that and I saw my boyfriend partner Aaron being with my son in this kind of odd awkward partnership at times Mm -hmm. you know again it's not like the one in the book exactly uh I think that Tom is much more sort of a need of companionship than my Mm -hmm than my son necessarily was just because he's moved to a new place and he doesn't know anyone. And it's just kind of situational, not that he's particularly antisocial child. Right. Right. Um, But I also just loved, I have ever since um, I had children being kind of fixated in my books on like the vulnerability of young boys and sort of the protector role that women and girls can play actually that sort of like reversal of, um, what is sort of held up in the culture where really mm-hmm. I do think that um that boys are they're much more delicate and fragile than girls of course there are exceptions to every generalization you can right, make right, right. and stuff but I mean in my life and with the children of those I know absolutely feel you know incredibly protective of 
of young boys. They seem, mm-hmm. seem incredibly raw to me and sort of <laughs> less sturdy and defended than than young girls. And, you know, of course, yeah, plenty of counterexamples, but that's what that's what I've observed. And so Tom's like that. He's sort of he is resilient in his own way. Right. He proves mm-hmm. kind of resilient. And and so does Gil. But um, but he's also just like this. This baby who's who's kind of open to the world in dangerous ways, almost. And they both need to learn language. I mean, Gil is not the most in tune with where his life is. And as we sort of watch him parse through everything that's happened and and what he's trying to do, the idea of watching this 11-year-old and this very not 11-year-old, I mean, Gil's what, in his 40s-ish? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, he's got some time on his neighbor, but he doesn't necessarily have the reference points either. He doesn't necessarily have the language either. He's been insulated in his own ways. And watching him sort of figure it out is as much fun as watching this 11-year-old figure out. I mean, beyond the fact that they're both on skateboards at one point, you're like, please don't fall and break something. Cause yeah, no, exactly. I can see that happening. Yes, yes. I mean, there's some other stuff that happens on the side and whatnot, but was that always going to be the primary relationship of this book? I mean, it feels like everyone sort of circles in and out of Gil's orbit, but Tom is really, once he's there, he's there. I think I at first was thinking that this was a story of the breakup of Gil's previous relationship and sort of his, but then it morphed as I went, as you know, as I went along as I was writing and I just became, I became sort of more interested in his friendship with Tom and how that could play itself out and how like a mother like artist could allow that and welcome it. I don't know. There's sort of like actual wholesome, like big heartedness of, of the relationship was, was kind of more interesting to me to go deeply into than this like version of monogamy that he had, had failed at. Um, it just became more interesting, that protectiveness. Yeah, he really is kind of a pseudo parent. It's it's much more than a big brother's kind of uh, the way Gil sort of pushes himself out of his own comfort zone to take action on behalf of Tom. It's there there are more than a couple of moments where Gil does something great and you're just like, oh, oh, <laughs> the Batman. I'm thinking of the Batman specifically. I was like, you know, it's not just for Tom that he's doing it, but he's also doing it, you know, I yeah, I really, I really appreciated that scene, and I'm also dancing around it a little bit because I don't want to ruin it for other people. But that was a particular moment where I imagined Gil thinking about Tom as he did it, but Tom is not the direct recipient of the thing that happens. It's interesting because, like, uh, a couple of people have asked me. I've just started talking about this book. One person I was talking to suggested that Gil was Jesus, a Jesus proxy. And another yeah. suggested that he was a Batman proxy. And both of these, I, I, I'm, I like both of them in their ways, but I had not conceived of, of either of them. And I can totally see the Batman thing. And I can see the sort of obvious symbology of Jesus given certain events in the plot. Having right. This and so forth. Uh, but I hadn't really, I had not consciously approached Gil as either of those figures. But when you say Batmask, I realize exactly, like I'm taken yeah. back to I'm taken back to why exactly that person would have said Batman, right. um, <laughs> which I had completely not even made that connection stupidly. When you say it, I'm just like, oh, yeah, that kind of makes sense. But as I was reading, I really thought of this more as Gill's coming of age. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, Gil has some weird ideas of freedom and money because he doesn't actually have to work because his parents left him quite a lot of money and it's been well managed and everything else. But watching him puzzle through what freedom actually means. And again, I'm going to come back to the glass wall for a second because that doesn't feel like freedom to me. And yet that is not a cheap house to live in. Right. You know, yeah. and here are artists and Ted making these choices. And they're, you know, they're perfectly lovely. I would not mind living next door to them at all. But the idea that we can buy our space, that we can buy our freedom, that we can buy things that we want. And Gil has a moment where he's like, I should get rid of all of my money. I should just give it all away. And his financial advisor looks at him and says, this is where you know nothing. And I need you to think about this for a year because that's what your grandmother would want. And before the year is up, he meets Lane, who's the ex that you were referring to earlier, who wow, she's not nice. I'm sorry. I'm just, you'll figure it out. People who are reading this novel, they'll figure it out the minute they meet her. She's just not nice, but she feels like a very specific kind of person compared to artists. And there's another woman who shows up later, Sarah. Um, she's really just laser focused on her plants. Yeah. You know, and in the past, when you've been talking about your books, cultural narcissism is a phrase that's popped up in multiple interviews. And I sort of want to bring it up here because you have these really warm characters with really big hearts. And they're very funny, sometimes intentionally, sometimes not. We have these folks sort of living in these very weird times that we live in now. But they're kind of okay, but they're certainly not the parents from Children's Bible. They're certainly not the folks from the LA stories um, fight no more, which I should, I just always call them the LA stories because they really hit yeah. very hard <laughs> in all the best ways. Oh, in God. all the best ways they hit very hard, but I was like, oh, oh. But can we just talk about that and, and the setup of your characters against this backdrop that is so familiar and so realistic and yet not apocalyptic. It's just very real. Yeah. And there's of course also like a tremendous danger to that and one that sort of Gil touches on this sort of like illusion of normalcy that we have in our lives so there's like it is both like a a happy story and a terrible story right when we can persevere I mean it's personally rewarding and fulfilling when we can persevere in our sort of cheeriness or in our blitheness or whatever it is in our in our small spheres and uh yet be aware of the of the menace that hovers really the extraordinary kind of existential menace that we live with um, at sort of arm's length, but also it enables that menace to continue descending, <laughs> like the sort of Damocles or whatever, right? So in normalizing, we stave off sort of revolution and normalizing the way that therapists want us to, um, which is actually sort of maladaptive. It's maladaptive of us not to confront threats to our survival um but we we did socially maladaptive on a sort of macro level but on a micro level it's adaptive it's just living your day-to-day life it's like one day at a time and stuff but really part of what i was writing this book about was the meniscus right like on a on a on a in a glass that water you know what it is but like with the brim the meniscus that sort of like level that sort of thin layer that exists sort of between substances of being or levels scales of community and and um and selfness and stuff where we can't seem to reach from one medium into the other 
we we can't seem to reach from our personal lives into the into the collective. We don't know how to do it. There's not it's not clear how to do that. And there's this like this membrane between us and the outside. It's a it is a it is a psychological membrane, emotional, but also ontological. And it's also a political membrane where we are actually cut off from dissent in any meaningful way often. And or we feel that we are if we're not. Um, and so also similarly cut off by the privacy of our minds from the collective and all this sort of all these two scales that seem almost to repel each other. And yet we live in both of them simultaneously. Like we live in the larger, we live in our neighborhood, we live in our city or our state or Mm -hmm. our country, but we feel often in our everyday life where we permit ourselves to feel as though we're somehow independent of all this. And it's like a delusion that we sustain. Um, Gil's a really good example of that though. I mean, he thinks that he's, at one point he talks about having a bartending job and he's like, well, as much as he liked it and he was good at it, he gave it up because someone else really needed the money. (laughs) And my first thought was, oh man, he's that guy. When I read that line, I'm like, oh, he's, he's that guy. Okay. And he's not that guy. Yeah. I mean, Gil, Gil has a whole progression, but this sort of, you know, oh, the poor people below me kind of thing, but he doesn't actually really know how to help because he doesn't know how to be in the world. That's not a function of age. That's not a function of class per se. It is a function of his money because he is, you know, he genuinely doesn't have to work, which I thought was a really great idea because there's so many times too where you know, you really can do whatever you want with your characters in a novel. Yeah. And we yeah. don't often see this sort of, I don't want to say Gatsby-esque, but he's a little Gatsby-esque. It's like, well, well he lives yeah. in a castle. Right. Pinball machines in the basement. Right. Yeah. And he's trying to figure out what to do with himself. Yeah. You know, it is fun. like I have known people of independent wealth mm-hmm. who work their whole lives. And yeah. I have known people who don't for various right. reasons. And I see much greater levels of satisfaction in those who do work um, and much more kind of depression really is, is probably yeah. the word for it in those who don't. It's not helpful to not do anything usually for most people. Um, and maybe you can invent ways to do things and tell yourself that you're doing something and that and some people do that. Some people take that path. Um, but doing things is what gives you hope. It's not hope that makes you do things. Action produces hope, you know, and, and even like, yeah, Gil's completely lost and he sees himself as like, it's a joke. His situation is almost a joke. Um, but he also just needs to do stuff. He needs to fill his time and he needs to, um, you know, have utility in, in his life. Uh, because there's just nothing if there isn't that for him. But I do think that can that he is yes the money sets him apart from regular people like me. But he also is all of us in the way of not knowing how to engage with the sort of grandiosity of what is and the threats um, that we now perceive in ways that even if you make some argument that our time is not an unprecedented time, which I think is a false argument. But even if you make that argument. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's certainly unprecedented the degree to which we receive information. And yeah. even the information by itself is is so overwhelming. Um, even, even if it weren't the content, even if the content were so alarming, 
the sheer volume of information would be. So part of what he's grappling with is that, even though I don't spend a lot of time in the book on social media, or I don't sort of like, I wanted it to be kind of an analog book, you know? Um, but still, that's the kind of information we're dealing with is everywhere all the time. Yeah, I mean, now that you say that piece of an analog book, it it's true. It's really only the kids that are on their phones at any given moment. It's more Clem than Tom. Right, right. So it's not, the book doesn't pretend that it, those things don't exist, but yeah. it doesn't linger on them, you know? Yeah, and I really appreciate it because I, I didn't notice. I, it just, I was so involved with your characters and I was so involved with what was going to happen next and being surprised. I, I was surprised so in all the best ways. I was so surprised as things. Because, you know, you bring whatever your reading experience is or your life experience to whatever you're reading, right? So clearly I have some things about neighbors. Um, maybe I shouldn't admit that on a podcast, but to be so delighted by this novel, which is what, 200 and something pages, it's not very long. I mean, you are a very compact writer. There was nothing I wanted to take for granted. There was nothing I could take for granted. You just kept surprising me around every corner. And I just really appreciate that because it's not often I get to say it. Sometimes, well, you know, writers you. That's, that's great. I'm so telescope happy. stuff and you're like, mm. um, yeah. yeah. but I love the idea that Really, there was not, and and you didn't have to set things in the '90s to be able to say we're just not going to have a lot of social media and a lot of screens, and there's not a lot of pronouncements about you know parents did not allow you to use. It was just this is where we are, and it's really about the people and their interiority and their relationships with each other. Yeah. But speaking of surprise, did anything surprise you while you were writing dinosaurs? I know I sound like I'm reading novels for the first time here, but really, I I cannot say enough good things about dinosaurs. I guess what surprised me was how warm it felt to be living with mm -hmm. these just few characters. I just mm -hmm. wanted to, you know, sometimes you, you write yourself into a space. I don't know. I feel a bit cheesy saying it that way, but you, you kind of make a scene that you want to exist in for a short time, right? If, if you're doing fiction or even nonfiction or various other things, and it doesn't even, it's not even limited to writing, but the particular sort of interior narrative of, um, of fiction allows, allows for this for you to actually exist in that made up place of yours for a while. I, I think what I wasn't expecting going into it, because I had this vague notion of this Lane character and I had um, Gil and his just sort of loneliness. But what I, I didn't know at the outset was that I'd be taking them into sort of this, into this sort of warm like cave of a book. That's really right. quite like a, a place of affection. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, and so that just sort of crept up on me. Maybe like you say, because of the neighbor wish fulfillment fantasy. Um, Cause I too, you know, I, I have lived in my neighborhood in the desert for 23 years now. And I, I do not know my neighbors. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a place in Maine that we, we spent the past two summers in and our neighbors there. I, I already know more of them than I have met here in this many years. And part of it is the spread outness of the desert. Like right. this is not the kind of community Gil is in. This is a much yep. more low neighborhood that I live in. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like a wildcat subdivision. So it's like out in this valley. Um, it's got a national park on one side, but it's got, you know, there's like double wides and single wides and old kind of falling apart meth houses. Yeah. <laughs> I actually have no proof that, that that was what was happening there at the time, but like kind of burnt a couple of burned out shells and junkyards and 
And then also some kind of McMansion. So it's a really kind of diverse mm -hmm. thing here. But still, I don't know my neighbors after all this time. And so this for me is like the, especially writing during, you know, during the Trump presidency, when I felt mm -hmm. so isolated out where I live by the kind of some of the, the MAGA culture that's out here and, right. you know, um, the anti-vaxxing uh, later and the anti-masking, because I, I wrote this before the pandemic for the most part. All of that made me feel kind of sad and alone in the place that I love, you know? Right. And so I think this book was a way to take me out of that partly, right? I know that's kind of cliched or literal, but it was just like, what if I had neighbors who loved me and I loved them? I was talking to a writer earlier this week. We were taping for a different show. And um, reading and writing are an act of connection. You yeah. know, and, and I think sometimes because there are so many people who think that, oh, you're just reading a book. La, la, la. You're in your own head. La, la, la. It's not just that. It's really, I mean, I am so pleasantly surprised that, I mean, I had all of these preconceptions about Gil. I will own it. I will totally own it every time. Like, okay, okay, who is this? <laughs> and I trust you implicitly as the, the novelist, so I'm, I'm going to follow you anywhere. I mean, that I knew, but at the same time, I was like, oh, she's going to make me work for this. You're going to make <laughs> me work for this. And he turns out to be just a dude I really liked hanging out with. And I sort of was expecting, you know, and he's got this great friendship with a friend who never tells him his first name, and then you find out what the first name is, and you're like, oh, I would never use that either. <laughs> it was a great <laughs> moment. There are all of these things where it's just like, this is real life and connecting with people and people I would never meet otherwise, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I think books are ways to talk to each other in this, you know, and and have been for as long as they have existed, like a way to talk to each other when we're not present um, with each other. You know, they're an abstract form of company and... Mm -hmm. And that's what this this book manifestly is that. Uh, but also just just sometimes like sharing someone's sensibility. It's like you finally found a friend. One, one of my best friends, actually, my an ex-boyfriend um, sort of grew up in a bit of a, you know, a family that was difficult to grow up in. And he just always found refuge in books because they're the people lived who he liked. There right. were his people, you know, and books really are just the minds of of others. And we enter these minds under certain circumstances and we live in them you know so this is just a place I wanted to live and for a little while do you read other people's work while you're working on a while you're deep in a new novel or are you one of those yeah I I'm always writing so I if I didn't I would never read but mm -hmm. <laughs> I must admit that like the past three years maybe or something I've been I have actually read a lot of nonfiction. Mm -hmm. Because I'm trying to learn, I'm trying to learn things. Right, <laughs> I'm right. trying to become less ignorant about certain things that I care very much about. And also there's just, a, you know, a lot of excellent work out there now mm -hmm. about things that are really important. And so I've read less fiction as a like proportion uh, of what I read than I used to. I used to read almost exclusively fiction. I mean, for many, many years. I mean, I'll be, for my day job, always I... I am in the news, like I'm right. reading that all the time. So that's never not present. But I wasn't reading like books of nonfiction uh, as often as I have been. So I'm, I don't know. So I'm a little impoverished right now. I think my, like, if you asked me about five books you just read, I probably would have read one at the most or something, you know, like I just, I'm, I'm not in the midst of 
this year's fiction right now. You know, it's more it's more nonfiction. Um, but yeah, no, I know I do. It doesn't distract me or I don't know, bother me to do that. It's just a different time of the day. One reason I don't teach um, very often is because I I don't I do find that just constant immersion in the writing of others, especially when it's not good, is um, that sort of is infectious or contagious or something that that can you can sort of get bogged down in reading of a certain kind when when you're being asked to like doctor that reading. I, so I do experience that as sort of oppressive reading, reading bad or mediocre. Writing. Um, I, I, I do have trouble with that, but I have no trouble reading good writing ever. Yeah. And mediocre writing. That's a whole nother conversation. But before I let you go, are you working on anything new? What's next? Yes. Yes. Um, so I have written a, a nonfiction book, um, which is part sort of memoir. It's about having children and about mm-hmm. extinction and religion and different things. I don't know. I don't know how to talk about it yet. So don't even quote me. Um. <laughs> it still sounds pretty great. And it also sounds like stuff that if we're reading your fiction, um, we kind of know that these are things you've been thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a book that's sort of a prayer or something. And then mm-hmm. there's, uh, an, I wrote a book of short stories, um, that's called the ists mm-hmm. uh, and that's about you know every story is like you know terrorist um cosmetologist that kind of thing all ists and then um and then right now i'm working on a novel um so yes i have lots of things i'm it's called the furthermore right now and it's very strange and has sex in it so anyway that's rock on <laughs> it all sounds good <laughs> so that's what i'm doing right now All of that sounds great, and I am really looking forward to reading all of that. Lydia Millay, thank you so much. Dinosaurs is out now. Thank you so much. It's really fun. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Dinosaurs by Lydia Millay. I'm Mark, and I'm coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, and I'm joined by a brand new book buddy, Madison. Hello, welcome. Hello, I am Madison. Uh, My home store is the Barnes & Noble in Indianapolis. I'm happy to be here. Fantastic. We're not too far from each other, but far enough away that Zoom is required. So we've got a couple of great books to discuss. Um, Madison, if you don't mind, I'll jump right in. Yeah, go ahead. All right. So I was thinking a lot about environmental fiction with this novel. It led me to probably one of the masters of environmental fiction, and that is Barbara Kingsolver. Uh, She is a wonder. And the book I chose of hers is Prodigal Summer. Uh, This book takes place over the course of a summer uh, and follows the lives of three sets of characters in Southern Appalachia. You follow um, two farmers who have a lot of opinions about themselves and about the world around them. You follow a very reclusive and isolated biologist studying coyotes who are new to the area. And you follow a young woman who was a hardcore city girl and has married into the most rural lifestyle you can imagine. And um, she's not really loving it. The book is gorgeous. It is meant to be read slowly, much like uh, King Solver's books. It's a very careful and tender narrative, and her prose is just beautiful and lyrical, and it just forces you to just slow down 
and breathe through these words and just let them sink in. I know the weather is getting a little chillier, but if you can read this book outdoors, I highly recommend it. It will just add to that element of the natural world creeping in on the story. So please check out Prodigal Summer by Barbara Kingsolver. Madison, what do you have for us? I wanted to recommend another environmental fiction novel. Uh, It is Migrations by Charlotte McConaughey. And I love this book purely because I'm a huge fan of parallelism. So if you love parallelism, this is a book for you. So the main character, Franny, she is determined to follow the Arctic turns on their last migration through Antarctica. So she is determined to just follow the birds on their final migration. And through the book, you kind of see her life kind of unravel, kind of like a final evolution, if you will is kind of what her journey is. So it's kind of parallel to that final migration and her final journey. Some dark secrets unravel, you know, there's some few twists and turns. It is just so amazing. And I think it is. it says something about these authors that they can write such wonderful parallels between humans and animals, because I think like at our core, we have more similarities than we even see. So that is why I wanted to recommend Migrations by Charlotte McConaughey. Uh, fantastic pick. I really, really like that author. Um, I recently read Once There Were Wolves, and again, she nails it on animal and, na- and natural behavior, paralleling the lives of these messed up people. That is all we have for today. Um, welcome, Madison, to the TBR Top Off crew. Thanks so much for hanging out with us and talking books. I really appreciate it. Oh. I'm happy to be here. It's exciting. (laughs) We'll be doing more of these. Don't you worry, folks. Um, But that's all we've got for today. So thank you so much for tuning into Port Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us at Barnes & Noble. Pretty easy. I'm Mark, and you can follow my home store at BN Westchester. And I am Madison. You can follow my home store at BN River Crossing. Thanks, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Bye-bye. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.